welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, go to PCAPaintEd.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all you non-members out there, sign up for our free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the Apple Store and Google Play. In today's podcast, we feature audio from our Expo 2020 panel series. In this episode, Andrew Dwyer from APC leads a panel about getting into the commercial contracting industry and the many challenges that different contractors have faced. Getting into commercial, I'm Andrew Dwyer. I gotta be honest, I thought, I thought this was a casting call. I thought the topic was getting into commercials. And I was kind of excited because I thought, I could totally do commercials. I could do a Doritos commercial. I think I'd be great at that. And I thought I had a great chance since I'm moderator. But I look at this group. It's a pretty good looking group. So I think my chances would uh, plummet. Good news is this is not a casting call for getting into commercials. It's about getting into commercial painting. That is the topic. I'm your moderator. I'm Andrew Dwyer. I'm publisher of APC. It stands for American Painting Contractor. We're the official publication, the official media uh, partner <clears throat> of PCA. Uh, I was just telling Andy, I've been doing this for 25 years. I started as a uh, junior high intern, of course, because um, I don't look like I've been doing this for 25 years. Thank you. Um, and we, obviously, we have the magazine. We have the weekly e-newsletter. We now do weekly podcasts. Um, we're shooting videos for contractors and manufacturers. So we have a lot of resources for painting contractors. Paintmag.com is where you can find out about that. Today, great topic. Uh, we actually have done several podcasts on this topic. Um, but before we get started in the topic, have you guys used the app to ask questions at a session? Who's done that yet? Okay, so here's how it works. Boom, 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 boom. I'm using someone else's phone and... <laughs> okay, so you go to the app, you click on the session. Then you scroll to the bottom, it says ask a question. And you can ask a question. You can also see the questions other people are asking. You can vote on them and that bubbles up the, uh, that question. And that tells me as a moderator, what's the most popular question? Very, very effective. So again, there's two ways to ask a question. Using the app, second way, write your question on the back of a Benji, hand it to me, you go right to the top. Okay. Loosen up, people, come on. <laughs> Our panelists, who are far more important than the moderator, we have. You'd think I would know their names. Andy Rowe, Matt Palmashano, and Ephraim Medina. And so I think what we're gonna start is just to give them sort of a brief introduction, not your life story, but just a brief introduction of the type of work your company does um, and how long that company's been doing it and how long you've been involved. And that is your microphone and hopefully that is on. Type of work you do, how long you've been doing it, <laughs> no? 
Yeah. Boom. Uh, my name is Efren Medina from uh, the Seattle area. Uh, we finished the year 71% commercial, the rest is residential. Uh, run 12 guys at the moment, rub up to about 20, maybe 30, depending on what, what we're doing in the summer. Uh, Seattle is a special market, it rains a lot. Don't move there, okay? Stay where you're at. My name is uh, Andy Rowe from Rowe Painting. We service uh, northern Nevada and southern Idaho. Um, we did about uh, just over four million in business last year, and 85% of that was uh, commercial. Been in business for 20 years, and we run about uh, 45 employees. Uh, Matt Palmashano from Ford Jack Industrial. We're in uh, Columbus, Ohio, and work from uh, basically Michigan down to Florida. Uh, we do a lot of traveling. Um, we primarily do big box retail and tilt up. Uh, some new construction with GCs on the tilt up, but mostly uh, repaints. We have about uh, 80 guys, uh, roughly, that we're working. So tell us uh, if you've always been commercial or if you used to be residential and you transitioned into commercial. We've been commercial the entire time. Um, and so yeah, I'm hoping that the panel may talk about some of the pitfalls with, you know, absolutely move through that. But that's kind of what I'm here for, I think, is to help with that piece of it. I don't know what the mixture of everybody is, but um, I grew up painting new construction homes. And before the economy crashed, that's 100% what I did was new construction residential. And then after the economy took a dive, I got completely wiped out. So as I rebuilt from that, there was definitely a focus on commercial, both in new construction um, and repaint. And so, no, I came from the residential world, but uh, now again, 85% commercial. And I think I'm the um, newest, youngest, because you guys look old, Best looking. by the way. Um, uh, we, it, was, it just happened for us. The last three years, we started doing more commercial. And uh, now we're, we're being intentional as for, hey, this is the marketing we want to do, and this is what we like to do, bigger projects, um, easier to manage. So yeah, uh, probably the, the newest in the market of all, of all of us. If you ever can't hear anybody, let me know, and they can hold the microphone closer. If we could also just sort of get an idea of who, we've, who we have in the, in the crowd, could we have a show of hands of people who do some commercial currently? Okay, and then a show of hands of people who don't do any commercial yet. Okay, okay, interesting. Um, so, I mean, this is an incredibly broad question. You could fill the, an hour talking about this, but yeah, let's, let's hit a few highlights about pitfalls, as, as you mentioned. Um, maybe your, your top one or two lessons learned thus far about the risks and the dangers, because the grass isn't always greener on the commercial side of the fence. So uh, talk a bit about that, about struggles you've had in commercial. Did you say our, our top one or two or top one or 200? <laughs> uh, I know uh, for us, some of the struggles that we've come across are um, you know, in commercial, especially if you're doing new construction, you're at the mercy of a general contractor, and general contractors don't always do their job very well. Um, so a lot of trade damage. Um, you got to be sharp about your contracts, what they say, what they don't say. The schedule, you can be the victim of their poor scheduling and get uh, jammed into the back. So I think uh, those are some of the things we came across early. And then as we got deeper into it, you know, you get to a point where you got to have an attorney that's on speed dial. You know, the use of an attorney before was really overwhelming for me, but I've come to learn that that's one more person, one more resources. You kind of navigate some of the, 
things in the contract world? You know, I think we, we've moved, you know, in commercial, we've kind of moved around a little bit. And so we, um, we did a lot of repaints and then we were doing some small GC work and then we went to, there was some really, you know, attractive tilt up new construction. And I think the, the lesson that we learned was um, two, twofold. One is that you should kind of start slowly in that new niche, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, in its commercial, but I'd even segment commercial in a much more narrow field. So whatever, whatever it is for your, your business, whatever you're interested in looking at, be very deliberate about where you're going. And then your core business, and assuming it's residential for most of the people in the room, make sure that your ducks in a row there. That's where your money is, and that's where your kind of safety net is. And then you as the owner or someone on your team needs to be living in that new area every day. And that needs to be their number one focus. Because if you get distracted by your kind of your core business, again, assuming it's residential or whatever it is, and you lose focus on that new thing, that's when I think you get blown out. And, you know, I'm sure we all have that. And it's ha it happened to us a couple years ago with a new thing, and it was real ugly. And I sure, certainly wouldn't want anyone to live that out here that, the way we did. So. so I agree with this, guys. Make sure you, um, if you want to enter that market, make sure you understand how to read a contract. Make sure you know how to bid a job. Uh, if you're doing a house for $10,000, now you're doing a building that might be five times the size, don't be afraid of. You figured out the number, that's the number. So I see most people, most of the smaller residential contractors, they go look at a building and they figure it out, they, they know the production rates, they know it's $100,000 to paint this building. But they've never seen those numbers on one of their contracts. So if it's 100000 bid it what it is, because it's easy to lose money quickly. So, yeah, we've done that, like, the beginning is just getting over that threshold of, hey, you know, this is what it's going to cost. And uh, luckily for us, we broke even on a job and learned a lot, but it could have been bad. So if, you, if you're using the app, you see, great question. One of the questions, guys, is, do you need a beard to get into commercial? <laughs> so. Only if you can grow one at this level here. Right, you wanna... exactly. I love the app. So uh, how about for people who are not yet into commercial, uh, talk a bit about the ways you have to prepare. And I want to specifically talk about financially, right? Because payment terms are different when it comes to commercial jobs. How do you have to get your financial house in order to start tackling higher priced commercial jobs? So I think the, the first thing you need to understand is cash flow. Um, and when I say that, what I mean is that your, your, your project is probably going to be larger than what you're used to a little bit. So, you know, typically it, it doesn't matter what it is, but let's say it's a $10,000 job that you're doing for this commercial contract, you're going to be lucky to get paid 30 days post completion. And so I think it's important for everybody in the room to think about, okay, well, how am I going to fi finance that through that period? So, you know, do I have cash reserves? Am I having other jobs that are going to pay for it till I get paid? Or do I have a relationship with a bank? And I think it's, it's a wise move to try to get a, a small line of credit with a bank if you don't have one. Uh, a local bank typically would be the best place to start. Um, and then one thing that we've learned is you've got to vet the person you're working for. You know, are they, are they you know, an established local company? Are they a big time GC? There's, there's a lot of pitfalls in all of those, but you really need to understand who your real customer is because that's going to determine how and when you're going to get paid. Yeah, I would echo a lot of that. I think uh, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was, Go set up a line of credit 
And after getting my ass handed to me when the economy shifted, I never wanted to deal with credit again. It was such a painful thing for me to go through. But the reality is, is cash flow is one of the biggest challenges. I think it's one of the number one killers of small business. So, you know, we plan on having to go 60 days. We try to collect at 30 days, but that's the reality of the commercial world there. Um, what, what are the other things you were saying with the, you said cash flow and? Oh, the customer. I think that's huge because there's definitely customers that we won't, if you're doing competitive bid work, there's customers we won't bid to because um, they're not good customers. We have one really big general contractor in our area and their hiring model seems to be hire bullies over project managers. So that's a constant, they're trying to bully you into just dealing with whatever mess they've made instead of you actually, you know, doing the things that you need to do in the order. Sequencing is so big for us as painters, so if you get a commercial job and it's new and they put in the flooring and the cabinets and the grid ceiling and everything in front of you, now we've got to mask all that off. So one of the things that we do is we reference the PCA standards on sequencing in every bid that we give, and we only work for the contractors that understand and respect our trade as much as the others. Well, for us, we like to work with the people that have the money ready to go. <laughs> so we do more HOA, that type of work, uh, not GC work, because I, I hate waiting 60, 90 days to get paid. Uh, even though we like to have a little bit of a cushion as for savings, uh, most, of the, most of the commercial work we do, we do directly for owners. So you build a relationship just like a homeowner. It's just larger buildings. That's all it is. So how about from a, uh, from a legal standpoint, since you're working, obviously there, there, I would assume there are distinctions working with commercial clients rather than homeowners. Um, what should people have in line as far as an attorney on call, uh, contracts, so that you don't get roughed up by a commercial client who takes advantage of maybe the, your inexperience, that type of thing? It's a different playground. Well, I would first say, just as a disclaimer, none of us are, are lawyers, so I think, you know, you obviously just take Good point. a grain of salt. But um, I think, as, you know, when, as you start to dabble in commercial, and some of you have already done that, obviously, and so I'm, I don't want to, you know, make an obvious point here, but it, it really is about these relationships with these people. And, you know, if you're, if you're bidding work, if you're getting, like, internet solicitations to bid, and you're just bidding kind of on those things, it, that's dangerous. I would really kind of caution you to not start there. Um, look around your community, find a couple GCs or, or people that you want that are commercial that you want to work for and start there because it's a trust thing a little bit, and then you build experience. We have ex we have a lot of exclusions that we put in our contracts, and I have a Excel document that I just start as we make mistakes. I just add to it, and then it, those things now auto populate in our proposals, you know, because it's you, you just keep learning and learning and learning, and then when you get the when you get the contract from the G, if it's a GC job and you get a contract, um, you have the right to, you know, ex to, to, to kind of discuss what's in that, liens and indemnification, all of those things, and you may not understand those things, and then you have to get a lawyer to kind of help you through it, but at the end of the day, you need to be ready to walk away. If you get a big contract that you don't like, it's, it's very tempting to say, I get this 50,000, 150,000, half a million dollar contract, you know, you really want to do the work. Um, but you, you, you should be ready to walk because they're going to they're gonna try to put it, they're always going to try to stick it on the subcontractor and, and, and you just need to be prepared for that. That kind of made me think there's, there's uh, 
I don't want to call them enemies, but they really are. There's enemies that we have out there. One is the general contractor's uh, attorneys. The other is the architects. Those contracts are constantly written in their favor, and they assume that we, as the little guy, don't have the money or the, the ability to read those contracts and fully understand what's in them. So I know we're talking about commercials, so if you're on the, the repaint side of things, most of the time in the repaint commercial world, we're providing the contract. So we've paid our attorney to create a contract that's friendly to us and fair with our customer. If we're in the GC world where they're providing a contract to us, um, early on, you're spending some money if you're asking an attorney to review that for you, but it's money well spent. That's the investment in going into commercial. And if you have someone in your office that becomes familiar with that, eventually you can read through the basic smaller contracts and understand what you would and you wouldn't accept. But they are always trying to slip something across there and say, also sign this and we'll give you the job. So we talked about indemnification or personal guarantees. These are things that have shown up that I had never seen in contracts before and now we're having to deal with. Um, we won't sign a personal guarantee. I have already personally guaranteed to the bank. I have a corporation for the sole purpose of protecting me and having a line of defense between me and, you know, people coming trying to take my home and my car and eat my lunch. So when you sign a personal guarantee for a GC, I don't know if he's going to run this job correctly. I don't know if he's going to staff it with a, a well-trained, you know, 20-year veteran of project management that knows the phases and what he has to put together. So if he makes a mess, he's going to, you know, come after me. That doesn't make any sense. So know when to limit the liability that you're willing to put out there for, especially as you're building up to bigger and bigger contracts. And that's hard. You've got to be you know, pardon my French, but you got to be ballsy sometimes and just be willing to walk away from a contract because there's something in there that puts you in a really bad spot. I agree 100% with this, guys. Uh, if you're going to enter, and my guess is that you guys want to explore the commercial. I know some of the guys in the room here that are already doing commercial. Is Make sure you understand what kind of work you want to do and check your state law. Because, I mean, we're all about sharing here, and I can say in my contract, in my worth, I might be nothing for you. So make sure you go to your state, talk to a lawyer, create a good contract, a good work order form, because they vary from state to state. So if you're going to go that route, make sure you do that. Andrew, I, I see something in here about square footage pricing. And oh, yeah. Can, we're getting... I, can we take that? you mind? Go ahead, man. Um, and let me just say that the, the question, I'm, you know, I'm sure you guys can see it, but the question is, do all commercial guys charge the same square foot price? So there, there appears to be some thought that there's more uniformity in, in rates and prices in the commercial field. So, so one of my estimators over here, except you put your hand up real quick, because I really want her to hear this one. Uh, you know, in commercial especially, I think that you start to learn the square footage rates. And so, you know, Bessie, you know, you could probably tell me in New Jersey what you know, what a 100,000 square foot paint, you know, painted square footage is gonna go for on a tilt up. If you kind of know that number, the, the challenge for you guys, if, if you've never done it before, and the, if you could take one thing from me today, is that just because it's gonna cost you 74 cents a square foot to paint some tilt up or whatever, you may not be able to do it for 74 cents a square foot. And that, you may not be profitable at 74 cents a square foot. And so, it you shouldn't take the work at 74 cents a square foot if you can't do it. Um, now, it, it may be that your guys aren't trained well enough. It may not be that you're not, your equipment's not set up to do it. It doesn't matter why, but just because it's going for that doesn't mean that you should do it. And so if I could give you guys one thing, it's like don't feel pressure. Maybe, maybe explore a different commercial thing or maybe train your guys differently or, or whatever it is, but don't take the work 
if you if you know you can't do it for the for what the going rate is in that community because it'll end up killing you. I would echo that 100% because you're trying to be competitive and you want the job, but just just because it goes for that price, if you can't perform that, you get into a point where now we're as a group collectively lowering the standard, and it's not uncommon to watch a guy that man that guy just he seems to win every job this year. He's won like the last four. You know, and he's so much lower than everybody, and everybody's scratching their heads trying to figure out how to, how to do that. I see Mike smiling because he's seen those guys that go out of business, you know, and yeah, a year later, they're gone. You never hear from them again. So just because they're taking work for that price doesn't mean that they have their financial house in order or really know what their margins are or what they're making. So there's a lot, big difference between doing commercial work and doing profitable commercial work. I'll echo that. Yeah, make sure you have your production rates Doubtland. I mean, it varies from company to company, so your numbers are ne never going to be the same. They might be in the ballpark once you have some experience and you know you're making money. But make sure, yeah, don't go by, hey, how much is that? We see that online a lot. So, hey, what do you charge for this? Well, we're, we're different. We can be right next door. We're going to be different. So make sure you're making money. Don't forget, it's, you're, now you're talking larger numbers. Don't be afraid to put that in your contracting. Go get, go get that work. One thing I should mention, you guys should not, all three of you should not feel obligated <laughs> to respond to every question. If you want to, obviously go ahead, but yeah, don't. One dollar square foot. <laughs> um, so here's a good question. For, for companies who have no commercial experience or very limited commercial experience, what would you advise on how they put the best foot forward on, when bidding uh, on such a contract, when uh, trying to convince a commercial client to choose them? What, what elements of their company should they try to play up that would put a commercial uh, customer at ease? Well, uh, for me, entering that market was more of, hey, I have a residential client who happens uh, to own a few buildings. They asked, hey, do you want to paint these buildings? And I went around, asked the painters in my area, hey, should I do this or not? This is what I would do. And then just get advice from PCA members. Um, now, if you're going to go after commercial work, I don't know about you guys, but starting with new commercial, large project can be super scary and dangerous. It can put you out of business quickly. So start small, one project at a time. Make sure you're taking notes. Make sure you have your production rates aligned. And then from there, look at, hey, are we really moving fast enough to what the expectations are? And then decide whether you want to go bigger or not. I think that's a really good point because, yeah, if you don't know what you're doing, you go out and just start launching bids out there, two things will happen. One is they'll gladly take all of your bids and use that as information. So they don't care how much time it took you to prepare those bids. But ideally, if you can get a start through a relationship, I think that's the best because, you know, Efren, you said it was, some, it was a client you already had residential right. and then they had commercial buildings. So you felt comfortable probably working with them for the first time, that they weren't trying to screw you and that you were going to be fair with them. And that's how some of my early projects were as well. You know, it was a relationship. It was somebody that I knew. Or it was jobs that were, you know, light commercial. Maybe it was a building that didn't paint that differently than a house. And so you kind of take those baby steps. I even went so far as on one of my first uh, commercial new construction jobs. I knew the guy needed a contractor. I knew I wanted to do it but I wasn't proficient at uh, the estimating process. I didn't have any estimators at the time. I was still a small operation. 
And so I actually just kind of fell on my sword. This came, this was advice from another painting contractor. He said, well, he said, you can just go to him and say, look, I want to do this job. I know you need a painter. I'm a good, you know, I'm a good painter, but quite frankly, I'm kind of weak on the estimating. So I don't know what number to throw at this to, to cover myself. And he said, okay, well, here's the deal. This is what my budget is. So let's take this budget. Let's have a conversation about what we're actually going to do here. And let's see if my budget is going to work for you. And that's how we, that's one of my first commercial new construction jobs. That's how I got it. We walked through, I crunched the numbers, and I was like, yeah, I think I can do it for this. And, you know, everything worked out on that job. So I think anytime, you, you don't always have to be the expert if they kind of know where you're at. And there's a lot of guys that do, a lot of general contractors that are in the same boat that you're in. They're a small general contractor, and they're doing TIs or tenant improvements. And so you get some guys like that that you're working with, you can kind of bounce off of each other, build a relationship. You're a little more pro protected as you progress down that path. Um, so here's a question. Obviously, PCA is a wonderful resource for everybody. What are some uh, non-painting associations that you guys are members of, whether it's local business groups, that you find very helpful networking with other trades? We do the AGC, and we also do our local chambers and things like that. Cool. Yeah, we're members of the BOMA, so I think it's uh, you'll find a chapter in every city, pretty much. Um, I like this question because it's, uh, I think it talks about sort of walking that fine line between protecting yourself but also making yourself uh, appealing to customers. Do you think you could lose a bid because of the amount of exclusions? I know it's important to cover yourself, but can your bid get thrown out because of too many exclusions? That sounds like it's kind of based a little bit more on uh, commercial new construction. So I'll, I'll kind of field that one. I think, yeah, you can absolutely make yourself, you know, your bid is the pain in the ass bid and they're just like, I don't have time for this guy. But that kind of depends on the market that you're in and how much competition. So in Southern Idaho, new construction, commercial, it's very competitive, a lot of contractors. And so really, if you just give them a whole bunch of stuff to read, they're gonna just be like, I don't have time for this. I just need a number. And they're gonna turn and go with the guy who has a number, but if you're asking questions down the bidding process, like sending RFIs when you read something that can, there's conflicting information in the architecturals, and you're asking a question that maybe somebody else isn't asking, that's going to make them go, oh, wait a minute. You know, I, Row Painting keeps sending these RFIs. They're the only ones catching these things because they don't want to have a headache later either where, you know, they told the concrete guys they were going to be responsible for the concrete ceiling, and they also told the painters. So who's, whose is it? Well, that becomes a fight later on in the project. You can catch those early on, so if your estimator or you are proficient at reading architecturals and you can catch those and ask questions, so while you want to put the exclusions in there that protect you, you also don't want to price yourself out of it or make yourself look like such a pain. If you're asking questions, they can tell you're trying to be a partner with them early on. Uh, I went to an event, oh, it was Georgia last year. Did anybody hear Gina speak last year about relationships in the commercial world? Nobody? That was one of the most valuable talks I ever heard, and one of my young commercial estimators came home with that, and it was like a switch was just flipped, because instead of just competitive bid, competitive bid, competitive bid, it was calling up their estimating team and saying, hey, can I stop by with lunch? I want to pick your brain about something. Most people won't turn down free lunch, so he goes and sees a contractor that we've done a little work with or we want to do more work with, and he's having a conversation. 
what would make my estimate more appealing to you? How can I help you guys have the information you need to get the job? They appreciate that because they're also in a, in a pressure cooker room trying to get these, these bids out and they have all these deadlines. And so they're trying to grab numbers and attach them and put them in. They want a partner that's also helping cover their ass and finding the things in the architecturals that maybe aren't clear that could create additional prices down the road. You know, the, the other thing, and, and I just want to start with this, is that it's, it, it's important when you talk commercial that you do stratify what you're talking about, because we're talking a lot about general, uh, general contractors right now. There's also HOAs, after you said that, and there's uh, facility maintenance people. So it's important that you understand which kind of world you're living in. With the facility maintenance people, a lot of time, I think the exclusions allow you to have a discussion. And so, you know, our goal and our company typically is to have a low bid, uh, you know, to have it look inexpensive, and then to have a bunch of alternates that the, the individual can elect to have. So we don't put caulking on, you know, at the top line. That's an alternate. Um, you know, typically, if there's going to be an additional coat of paint or a better type of paint, those will be things that they can choose to have. And that allows you to have a discussion with them. It allows you to get back in the room with that uh, facility ma maintenance guy or, or, or an HOA to say, like, look, I've given you a low bid compared to everybody else because all the other contractors are probably trying to throw a low number two, but then it allows you to kind of get add backs or upcharges to them and give them a better product if they choose to have it. And then more, most importantly, at the end of the job, if they're less than satisfied with something, a lot of times you can go back to your proposal and say, I gave you the option to do this thing, but you chose not to. Um, and you know, we had a discussion about it. And I think, so for me, exclusions a lot of times allow a discussion. And it's not really, it's not so much legal as much as it, it allows you to get back in the room and, and, and do a little bit of sales and marketing with them. Uh, so that kind of addresses uh, one of the questions was, how do you build relationships with decision makers? Um, so a similar question, do you walk away if the contract includes an indemnification clause? My short answer would be yes. I pretty much try to walk away if that's the case, but it's a case-by-case -case basis. Depends on the size of the project, and you know sometimes you just got to make risk versus reward decisions on some of that. <clears throat> Where we at the size of a company, what our goals are, we walk away. And I would say if we've never worked from before, we walk away. So you got a relationship with a guy, and they're they're you know there's new boss or something, maybe. But if it's someone we've never worked with before, it's a no-go for us. When we're talking about contracts, to what extent do you make your own decisions on contracts as opposed to, hey, this is a contract I need to send to my attorney? We kind of set thresholds that change constantly, but um, on smaller contracts, we have estimators in our office that know how to read and what to look for. But sometimes it's a financial number, you know, over $50,000, it automatically goes to the attorney. Or sometimes it's, I read this and everything looked pretty normal. We've worked with this customer on a regular basis. So it's kind of one of those case-by-case -case cases where you can set a financial number or you can just flag certain activity. And again, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer. I'm married to one, but that doesn't really count. And it's probably miserable. I don't recommend it. But anyway, um, but what we do a lot of times, we'll line item stuff too. So like, you know, you're looking through a contract and... I just start crossing stuff out and initialing it. And then we'll sign it and we'll kick it back to them and then you kind of wait to see what happens. I'd say 50% of the time, 
nothing happens. They, you know, we it comes back and it's signed, and they haven't uh, they haven't really you know they haven't pushed back on anything. And so uh, you know, I just try that first. Um, so sometimes it doesn't work, but sometimes it does. And you, that's called redlining. You redline your contract, send it back to them what you will and won't accept, and we'll do the same thing. And you know, like I said, it most of the time it goes through. You never hear about it again. Every now and then something becomes a sticking point, and if it's a sticking point in a big enough contract, then yeah, we're having a conversation with the attorney, what's our, our issues here. Sometimes you might want to give them a heads up that that's coming. I did know a, a commercial painter, and he had a lot of work with one big contractor that was fairly new to our area, but a pretty big nationwide contractor, and he redlined a couple contracts and sent them back, and they basically sent an email and said, you ever redline one of our contracts again, you'll never work for us. Well, he said, okay, I'll just never work for you again. I had some similar experience with that same GC, and we tried to have the conversation, but they were asking us to sign something that said, when we submit our bid, we're agreeing to sign your contract and not change anything, and we had never seen the contract. That's ludicrous to me, but they were so big, they just feel like they can bully people and say, this is what you, take it or leave it. Well, for us, it's a leave it. I think collectively as an industry, the more people that take that kind of stuff put themselves at risk, the more of us that say no to that protects us all. Uh, pretty specific question here. What is your close percentage on new commercial work? So my, I, I can tell you that it's not anywhere as good as repaint. So repaint close percentage, we're typically looking at 40% is what we're after. In new, uh, it can be lower than 10%. So you're putting a lot of work out there with less chance of getting it. But as we've shifted more to relationships and, and away from just everybody gets a bid, We've seen that start to creep up, so I believe we went from just under 10 to 14 last year, and I thought that was a massive victory for that line of work. So, Bessie, don't, don't write this down, but everybody else can. Um, if you look at the structure, now we're talking general construction again now, so we're kind of back in that niche, general construction niche. If you look at general construction, the first question you should ask a GC is, are you, have you been awarded the contract, or are you competitively bidding it? And you know, typically they're going to say we're competitively bidding it. You know, bids do like in three hours. That's typically the response. So then your next question, your next call should be to the developer. And you call the developer and you say, "Hi, my name's Stephanie or whoever." And and um, who 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 are the GCs that are bidding this work? Because if you look, if you think about it as a flow matrix, with the owner being the decision maker, and then it's a tree basically branching out from there. Right now, you're only working with one of potentially four GCs who are bidding the work. And then so your number needs to be typically the lowest number for that GC who's bidding the work. So if you can discover who the other three GCs are, you've just basically, you know, probability and statistics, I don't know the exact numbers here, so don't, you know, math and public's not my thing, but you've just dramatically increased your ability to win that bid. So, so that's, you know, so that's how you increase your close percentage when you're working with GCs. What he's talking about is a lot of times you'll, you'll give a bid to a general contractor, but there might be four other general contractors bidding the same job, who each one of them is getting five bids for the painting part. So it might be one out of 50. So getting in, finding out who the others are, and what are the chances of the general contractor you're doing a bid for is actually ha might have a chance to get the job. Otherwise, you become an estimator, not a painting contractor, where you estimate it all the time and not getting anything. And if you don't have a full-time estimator, someone who sits in front of a computer all day long, good luck with that. 
What do you guys use uh, subs or do you use your own employees for the commercial work? We have explored a little bit on the sub side. We were 100% in-house painters. Uh, last year we had two subs that we have a relationship with. There's people that used to work with us and they were on their own. They didn't have enough work. So it's a little bit of, uh, hey, if we're painting one building, I'm okay if I have a sub right next to me as long as we're still there. If not, we're 100% in-house painters. For the painting, we're 100% in-house. We sub things like drywall or wall covering. Um, and we certainly are curious about the use of subcontractors. I know Alpine has it pretty dialed in, and that's always something that we're looking at. That throwdown debate they had was incredible. I don't know how many people got to hear that, but that seems to be the hot topic question right now. And we're primarily self-perform as well, what we call self-perform, but in-house. Um, we, we sometimes will manage the risk a little bit by having some subcontractors, but mostly it's masonry work um, or other you know, specialist yeah, trades that we don't necessarily have a, a, a specialty in. So the question is, uh, the giant general contractor won't let me alter the contract at all. Is there any way to deal with that other than simply walking away? No. Um, <laughs> and I think for, for everybody in the room, it's, it's, it again becomes a risk question for you. Um, if you've never worked with a giant contractor before and, they're, and, and they're, they're, there's probably a reason why you're pushing back on a specific thing. It's something that's making you nervous and if they can't um, you know, alleviate your concerns, then they're probably not a good partner. And you know, this is just the beginning. You know, you're just doing the paperwork. Uh, I love being, I, I'm not the operations guy, my business partner is, and so I love being able to hand all my problems to him when we sign the contract. But that's, that's not, the, the reality is you're just, the, the contract piece is just the beginning. And you're gonna spend a lot of months with their superintendent on this job site, and if you can't get through the contract without disagreement, it's probably indication of how things are gonna go in the future. Uh, do you have to agree to the paid if paid clause? To, do you have to agree to a paid only if paid clause? Do you have a soapbox you can bring up here so I can get on it? Because that is <laughs> we got time. Makes man. me crazier than this topic. So, you know, back in the day, a general contractor said, "I'm going to build this building," and I have. How many people here tell your employees, I'll give you a check as soon as I get paid? None of us, right? We have to pay our people every two weeks, right? Or once a month or however you guys do it. So it drives me batty that general contractors can get into these bigger and bigger projects and that that clause exists because they are taking so little liability there. And so they didn't get paid. Well, why didn't they get paid? Because they picked the cheapest electrician and now they're out dealing with trying to clean up his mess. You know, there's so many different things that can affect. But as far as do you have to accept it, I mean, ultimately, if you want the job, I've found no one is going to negotiate on that. They are all going to be, we're going to pay you when we get paid. And knock on wood, we've been pretty fortunate because we try to be careful with who we work for. But we had a case last summer where there was a, a you know, subcontractor meeting. They brought everybody into the room. And they tell everybody, I wasn't there, but my project manager was. And they said, uh, Bad news, we ran out of funding. We thought we would have it all by the time we got halfway, but we didn't, so we have no money. Okay, let's talk about the schedule next week. And my guy got up and said, well, let us know when we get paid. Don't put us on the schedule again. So again, they went very quickly into that bully role. We were like, 
we're pulling up stakes, we're getting our, our lien filed. Some states are pre-lean, some states you can lean once this happens. So we got really aggressive about that. But that's the risk that you run when you get in you know, to, to the bigger commercial and they could be sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars that they owe you and you thought you were gonna have to go 60, you know, you were hoping for 30 and now it's turned into, you know, I think in this particular case, it took five months for them to get current with us and us to be able to get the job done. So sort of on that topic, as far as risky behaviors, do you guys have any advice uh, on, because we're always, we're always weighing risk, right? There's intelligent and wise risk, risk worth taking, and then there's, well, less than that. <laughs> That's a risk that probably wasn't the wisest thing. So are there, are there actions and decisions that you've seen companies make uh, that while you may understand why the contractor made those choices, wow, ideally you shouldn't take on that type of risk. Does that, does that make sense? I'll just share ours. How's that? <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a contractor that was here earlier this week and we were sitting around, he's, he's very big, um, huge actually, national guy. And we were chatting about a, a, a general contractor, who in, they're, they're national, they have an office in New Jersey. And um, I said, man, we, we had a really bad experience with them. And he said, so did we, we don't work for them anymore. And I said, nor do we. Um, and you know, for us, we, we are, when we job costed it, our loss was 100 grand. You know, it was a six month project, we like negative $100,000 on the job. It was horrendous. Um, but my point is that, that that general contractor is floating around looking for you. You know, he wants you. And so um, the naive guy, you know, and you know, I didn't talk to the, this member, this, this, this other painter two years ago about the contractor. But, but that general contractor is out here and he's looking for you. And the, you know, that general contractor is just an example because there's some general contractor in your town who's looking to take advantage of a guy and whether it's you know just add a couple zeros or take a couple away but he's looking to take advantage of the next guy and so that's my that's my life lesson for that i think i would use this as an opportunity to plug what we're all doing here we're all here at pca for the reason of elevating our industry and some of these things you're exactly right he's he's looking for every one of us and none of us know so the more we get familiar with how we should be operating what standards we should set for ourselves um, I, I think that helps us all. You set the standard of what you will and won't accept, what you will and, and won't allow people to, to treat you like, you know, in life. We find that the gen general contractors that come from out of town because they build every whatever store it is, those are the first ones that wanna, wanna hose us because that's what they're used to doing. They walk into a town, they call you up, yeah, that price is no problem. They're gone in another town and you're chasing your money for a long time and they probably didn't run the project very well. So I think in general just all of us working together and communicating about how we're, what, what standards we're, we'll hold for our industry and what we will and won't put up with is, is a big part of us not having to deal with these, these issues as much. Any thoughts on, again, thinking about contractors who want to do more commercial, maybe they're already doing some, but they want to do more, um, as far as how they can create a path forward. Should they quantify it? Should they say, I'm going to, I'm going to bid 15 jobs a month, or I'm going to bid 250 grand a quarter, um, and try to hit those benchmarks. Or should they take baby steps and one job at a time and see what I learned and use that for the next one? Any advice on how you can grow intelligently? 
we have a goal set as for how many bids we want to do and dollar amount that we can produce and how quickly we can hire and grow. And yes, having a being intentional with that definitely helps. If you're, if you're going to hire an estimator, if you're going to outsource maybe some of that estimating, uh, understand what's your capacity. Because you can easily get into a situation where you're bidding something really big that you can't even do it. So yeah, having a clear, clear plan definitely helps. Yeah, we're the same. We, we have sales goals that we want to reach, and we have uh, full-time estimators in both commercial and, and the repaint divisions. So they know what they have to reach. As far as, as gate, you know, gearing up to that, you've got to know your close rates because you've got to know how much work you've got to be bidding to be able to know what it's going to take to reach those, those standards. So any time you can systemize that and know your numbers, it's going to help you. Do, do any of you on the panel do the estimating? I did all the estimating until I could get an estimator. So um, those early commercial jobs, it was at the end of a long day, and I'm in my office with a light on and just going over architecturals. I had no formal training on it, but I learned to read the, read the painting specs, and I learned to look through, and it wasn't ideal. Now we're you know much more tech savvy. Our estimators all use software where they do takeoffs, and there's more much more of a system to it. But sometimes you've just got to stretch as a person because you're wearing all of the hats. That was my experience anyway. Any advice on how to train your estimator, how, how you've gotten to the point where you're both on the same page uh, and, and you trust and you're both going after the same goal? How'd you achieve that? So I would say that, that one of the best things you can do is, is follow up with the GC or, or, the, or the facility maintenance guy or the HOA. You know, if you get the job, great, and then you should be really diligently job costing it. If you didn't get it, I think you need to call the, 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 the person that you gave the bid to and say, look, look, how do we do? Can you give me some feedback? Can I come in, can I buy you lunch? What, whatever it is, like establish that relationship, A, for feedback, and then B, for the relationship. And then what we encourage our people to do is if, they, if you can't get feedback from that estimator and they've brought you a couple jobs to estimate, it's not a one-way street. Like, you have the right to get feedback. And so you should express that to that person. Like, hey, you know, I've, you know, it's eight hours of bid or whatever it is, you know, and for, especially for some of the, the repaint stuff, I had to send a guy out there. We're investing a lot of time in, in, in generating this proposal for you. If you can't give me feedback on that proposal, we're no longer going to dedicate assets to it because clearly there's a problem with our proposal that's not allowing us to get the work. And I think having that empowerment kind of mindset that they owe you, they don't owe you something, but you have the right to ask for that. And if they choose not to give it to you, then you have the right not to you know, give them proposals anymore and find somebody that's better. I think you should absolutely ask for feedback. That's, there's, you know, your time is worth something, so whether it's repaint or it's commercial, you know, if you're doing commercial and it's public, you're gonna, it's a rip and read, you're gonna hear them read out what everybody's numbers were so you know. On the private sector, it's a little different, but if you're, like I said, going back to how the estimators work with the the GC's uh, estimating team from early on. If there's RFIs going back and forth and there's information, they're more likely to have that relationship and know they need to share with you and say, ah, you know, you guys were good. You were the middle bid. We're gonna have to go with a low bid. Sometimes they will tell us what the low bid is. Sometimes they won't. Uh, but each little bit of information, if they're not feeding you information, it's not a relationship. You're just an estimating service to them. Yeah, and don't, don't forget the human side of business. Talk to them, build a relationship. If, if, you don't, if your gut is telling you this person might be hiding things, 
It's, it's just like painting one door or painting a building. It's the same thing. You're dealing with another human being. So make sure you, you understand that there's a relationship you've built there. And be okay. Be upfront. Be clear. Hey, regardless if we work with you, we want to work with you, right? Make it clear. If that's your goal to work for that company, make it clear that you want to work for them. But also ask, hey, if we, for whatever reason, we're not the company that ends up working with you, will you give me feedback? And once again, if they say no, maybe they don't want to work for them for the first place. One other thing on that is that uh, this is a sales piece of it a little bit, but uh, we like to tell, like, we find a lot of times that the, 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 the local commercial guy has his guy. You know, I've been working with Bill for 20 years, and, you know, Bill is whatever. We always like to say to them, well, you know what, here's our bid. Maybe it's a little bit higher than Bill. Bill's a low, he's low price. That's his, that's his mar or maybe he's relationship. Either way, it doesn't matter. But, you know, here's our bid. We feel good about this price. We'd like to be your second we'd like to be your second alternate, right? We want to be your, your other guy. So if Bill can't do the work for whatever, he's got capacity issues or, or, or you have problems with him in the future, we want, that's the way I think it's a very safe, non-confrontational way to get in with these people is we want to be your second call. And that allows you to keep your, so you're not going after price now, you're going after relationship. And it, it's a long play, but I, it, it seemed to work pretty well for us. Tremendous advice. Um, and after this question, I'm going to ask you, I'm a big believer that we learn most and best from stories, personal experience. So I'm going to ask you after this next question, if you've got any, uh, I guess, kind of back to the pitfalls concept of just any lessons learned, um, specific stories you can tell the group. Uh, and again, a lesson that you learned that you haven't made that mistake since. But before we get to that, a question from the app is, uh, how do you protect your profit margin while bidding commercial work? <laughs> Sabotaged again. <laughs> I said Efren could have dropped the mic after that. That was a mic drop. Yeah. That was good. That's basically it. Know your numbers. I mean, I think for those of us that started from the ground up, um, it always hurt not to get the job because I wanted the job. But I could sit on my calculator and I could tell you why sometimes the best job is the one that you didn't get. And so knowing your numbers. And then I think in the repaint world, the the scope being clearly written for your crew lead, so having a really good detailed work order so they know and that they're trained when they show up what they are and are not painting. Um, because, you know, you might establish with the customer that we're not going to trim any of the bushes, but your crew leader shows up there on first day and the customer comes out and says, when are you guys going to trim all these bushes? And if the work order doesn't tell you what's going on there. So in the repaint division, you got to have, have that and the transfer of that information. In the uh, new construction, I think it's really... Uh, the sequencing. I would say the PCA's uh, standards on sequencing should be in every job that you bid. Reference those constantly. There was a conversation a couple years ago about 
getting the architects to put them in there, and we would love to see that, and I don't know where that's at, but you know, the PCA standards on sequencing will cover your ass. Just in case you didn't hear them, sequencing is something that you should, everybody should write. If, you, if you're not in commercial right now, you should write that down for new construction, um, and also weather. So if they don't get it done, if they, if they can't get you in, we're, 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 most of us are in the north here, if they can't get you into the building but before the weather changes and then they put the glass in, the awnings in, the, the sidewalks in, the landscaping in, blah, 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 you, you need to be, those things, sequencing, it, it's, it could make or break your year. So I think that Mike dropped it. So let's imagine you're, uh, you got a new hire and you're, you want to tell them a story. Get, this is getting back to the question I warned you about. Uh, you want to tell them a story, a new hire about uh, an important lesson learned or, or maybe one of your son or daughter is about to join the company and you want to share your pearl of wisdom. What is that story you're going to share with them? <laughs> we, we, so I, again, going back to deliberate planning, if you think strategically, if you will, the first question is, are you, do you have, is this general contractor a relationship or a transactional event? Are they coming into town to do one job or is it a relationship thing? So just, I would ask yourself that. So we, this is a relationship story. We were, we'd given the proposal. They had gone, it was a, you know, Duracraft or super paint option. So, you know, low end or, you know, kind of, it, it was one coat of Duracraft because that's what the guy before was doing or two coats of super paint. And obviously the price was different. Um, we, they wanted to change the color and like just kind of a little bit. But when we drove the building with the facility maintenance guy after the fact, it, it didn't look great. And it looked, um, you know, there's a little bit of bleed through and it, what you would expect. And, you know, he was, he was testing us out a little bit, but he's like, you know, I'm not happy with this. And I was able to bring out the proposal and say, we gave you the option for a, you know, two coats of sewer paint. And we, in, in the proposal, we said, the Duracraft may not work. Um, and, and he's been a customer for us now for the last seven years because he trusts us. And now we can have conversations with him because we, it wasn't like we were trying to pull something over on him. We just, we gave him the, we gave him the opportunity to shoot himself in the foot and we warned him that he was gonna shoot himself in the foot. And then when he shot himself in the foot, we reminded him that we had warned him and that we gave him the opportunity and that he had done it. And, but now we have a guy that when we talk, we now can have a conversation. He can say, look, this is all I have in my budget. I'm gonna go cheap or I wanna do it right. And we have those conversations now because of that, because of that what happened. But again, it was back in the, the exclusions from the proposal. And we have never ever had a problem or lost money. So I don't have any stories to tell <laughs> that one. No, I think uh, most of them I blocked out, the most painful ones probably, but I think one that happened just recently was we were on a big job and the architect's favorite new tool that they use was they, they came up with the, look, the spec says one coat of primer and two coats of finish. Okay, prime it and paint the first coat of finish and then when it's all done, I want you to come back and paint the last coat. No, that doesn't work. Like we are putting these coats on subsequently. That's how it's written here. Now they've started writing it so that you know it's there and you can prepare and price it. So watch out for that if you're doing new construction. These quotes are going on subsequently unless otherwise directed. And if they direct you for that third coat, that's like doing a repaint at the end of the project and you gotta price it accordingly. So a lot of guys are doing this, a lot of GCs are doing this now, which is all well and good, but what happens when the trade damage becomes excessive? Okay, I'm supposed to come back and put my third and final coat on this building, but you've got four foot by four foot drywall patches on every wall. And the GC looks at us and says, so you still have to put your last coat on. Okay, who's gonna pay for the coat of primer and the coat of finish to catch it up and then I'll roll that last coat on. 
So you get into this tug and this push and pull. If you've covered yourself with a, a specification early on, you're good. But in a competitive bid world, in the public works jobs, you don't get to redline anything. You don't get to submit anything. So they can hang you out to dry on that one. Anyway, last year we did a school. It wasn't a public school. It was private, fortunately. And so after our third coat, they continued to just hammer and beat the crap out of this building. So every time we came back, it was a change order. It was, uh, you, you know, we'd get a change order. We'd get the T&M, whatever we got. Well, on the very last one, we had a relationship established with this company. This was the second job we had done for them. And on the very last one, the project manager walked the job with him and said, okay, there's still more trade damage. There's about 100 hours, or actually, I think he thought there was going to be about 150. And they fought us on this back and forth. So finally, he made a deal with them, and they agreed upon 100 hours, $50 a man hour. It's a $5,000 change order, right? He didn't get it in writing, and he knew he needed to get it in writing, but he had gotten so used to working with this guy, established a relationship, kind of got lulled to sleep there a little bit, and so what happened when we're trying to do the final collections on it, you know, four months later, and they're going, well, you don't have a change order. Well, we had this conversation. Well, I don't remember any conversation. He's done. He's in another state on another school that he's building for this company, and he totally tried to hose us on it. So one of the things that I did learn from that was at the closeout docs, we had the right to list if, we if there was any disputed amount. And so I ended up going back to the guy and saying, look, you know, it's a $5,000 change order. I have nothing in writing, so you don't have to pay me anything. But I'm going to list it as a dispute. I'm not going to come after it, but I'm going to list it as a dispute. So when you turn this over to your owner, and they say, well, why'd you screw the painter for this last $5,000? You're gonna have to explain this. Or you can just cut me a check for half of it. You know, I'm not happy, you're not happy, great. And you know, we'll at least get paid on half of it. So they paid on half of it because they didn't want it listed as a disputed amount. So also know how your closeout docs work because that could give you a little bit of leverage towards the end of the project, but always get it in writing. That's great, excellent, excellent stuff. Uh, question from the app, are there estimating programs or educational resources that you recommend? Again, for estimating. So we use uh, estimating software. We use for the uh, repaint division, we use a product called One Step. And for the commercial division, we use uh, Pipeline Deals as a CRM. And we also use uh, PlanSwift and Timberline for doing takeoffs. We, have, we use uh, something called Viewpoint by Vista. Um, if anyone's considering it, come talk to me afterwards. I uh, highly recommend you think twice about it. Um, yeah, so I'll just leave it at that. Did it sound, hopefully it was negative. I hope, I hope that, that wasn't subtle. Hopefully everyone's picking up on that. Another question from the app. How do you stand out when new construction GCs have bid lists of dozens of people and almost always go to the lowest? Again, I think it's, it goes back to the strategic question. Is this a transactional relationship or is it um, relationship-based, right? If it's transactional, you have to be the low price, I mean, period. And so if you're getting, if you're on a bid list and it gets kept, you know, we're doing the Verizon in your town, and then the next day it's we're doing the In-N-Out Burger in your town, and the next day it's we're doing the Burger King in your town. You have to be the low price. And so how, how can you drive down your cost? So if that's your model, that's great, but how are you gonna be that guy to be the cheapest? So that's a question for you. And if it's, if it's you know, relationship, then you're providing more service and there should be more costs associated with that, I think. I think the big takeaway, you know, you keep hitting on that relational versus transactional. 
if, if everybody that wants to be in commercial says what we're going to focus on is relationships, which let me tell you, that's absolutely what you want. I have, thankfully, after 20 years in business, a couple of general contractors that do not shop me out. Do you know how wonderful that is to be able to say they give us a set of plans and we give them a price and they go and they put that price in and we get paid? I have fewer change orders with those clients. There's less paperwork with those clients. We already know we've included, you know, the, the unknown and they've priced it out. We're not the cheapest. They're not the cheapest. They're not trying to sell themselves as the cheapest. So that relationship world is absolutely the place to be. In the transactional world, you're stuck with the low bid. But what we've noticed is as the economy has been good and everybody's been busy, sometimes these guys come into town to do your Burger King or your Starbucks or whatever, um, they can't get anybody reputable to bid on the project. And so instead of trying to be the low bid, we don't. In fact, our prices go up when it's a transactional bid because there's a pain in the ass factor. We know that there's a good chance that they're going to try to take off and skip town. And so anyway, I think you focus on the relationships and don't try to be the low bid on those one and dones. Know that you've got to factor in, you know, some chasing of the money and, and the pain in the ass factor there. Yeah, and if, you, if you're invited to bid and you get 20 projects, say, can you give us, can you bid this 20, 50 projects and you don't get one? Well, that's a big old red flag. They're just looking, they're using you. They're not looking to work with you. So be careful there. Because uh, we, we did a project two years ago for, for a general contractor. Uh, we came in as the last minute that their other painter left the job. So we did, it was great for us, but next, I mean, the very next day I had 50 emails like you bid this for us. And uh, we haven't gotten one after that. So be careful so you don't become a, uh, an, an estimated company, you are a painting company. Uh, you guys were talking about sequencing and how important it is, so here's a follow-up question on that topic. So if the GC leaves the PCA sequencing order, do you create a change order or do you charge more? We were just having this conversation this morning, weren't we, Mike? Um, this, you've got you to catch it early. So you've got to train not only your field superintendents, your crew leaders, your lead painters. You've got to train down to that level that they know what they're looking for. So when they walk into the building and the area that's ready for them is, you know, hallway A and they go to hallway A and there's a grid guy working, they right then and there say, I can't start painting this today. And the superintendent says, well, you better start painting it today. Liquidated damage. He starts barking because he's a bully. So they know to get on the phone and make a phone call because we now have to at least have a conversation. So sometimes if they haven't gotten very far, we'll say, look, you've got about, you know, 10 hours of work you've created for me here. You know, that's a $500 change order. I, I can't just eat that. And he'll sit there and say, well, you know, I had to do this. Because, he'll tell you about all his problems. I had to put this in because of this, because of that, and blah, blah, blah. And then he'll tell you how far behind you are on the schedule. But really, they were supposed to give the job to you a month ago, and they didn't. So, so sometimes we'll work with them early on when we catch them, and we'll say, look, here's the deal. That's, that's a change order right there. Let's do this. I'll eat that, but you can't do that to me again in this building, or it 100% is a change order. Are we in agreement on that? It's clearly referenced in our bid. And most of the time, the superintendent on site, he's not familiar with the bid docs or anything that we worked out when we were going through the estimating you know, process, it's totally different divisions. 
but you let him know that we've covered ourselves by putting those standards in there. I can get you a copy of the standards if you want, and then he's going to start backing off because you're kind of telling him what his job is, and he knows. He knows he's supposed to give you the painting before the cabinets, before the, the flooring, before the, the acoustic ceilings, but you kind of got to train your on-site superintendents and let them know what you will and won't put up with. We find by giving them a, a lucky bone first on, you know, early on, then they're more likely to work with us. So I've got, I've got more questions here, but I also just want to give you guys the opportunity because we're quickly running out of time. We've got about five or ten minutes left. Is there anything you want to touch on, any closing thoughts uh, that maybe we haven't covered in the questions? I think for those of you that haven't gone into commercial, I think a good question to ask is why do you want to go into commercial? You know, I think you need to think about that. Like, you know, it's awesome. You know, there's big money and, you know, it's, there's, you have less salespeople. You have to deal with, you know, wives and dogs and kids and... That's great, but like, you know, what do you, what do you want to do? Is your company structured to do this thing? Do you have the cash reserves to do it? You know, I think it's a good question to ask, just why? And then if you say, I think I want to do it, then I would list out all the negative things that can happen if you go into commercial. And then figure out a response to all of those, and then you're probably ready to do a bid, as opposed to doing what a lot of us have done, which is get, your, get in over your head, have a, a lot of sleepless nights, you know, try to avoid your wife for a couple months, you know, and all of these things because you just weren't ready. So I would just, that, I would ask yourself those big questions first and then think about how you're tactically going to do it. Yeah, I think that's really good advice there. I think, you know, a lot of us just, you know, for me it was post-economic failure and I was hungry, which is good. It's good to be hungry, but I was chasing and there was nothing I was going to say no to. And so, you know, kind of springboard off your point, decide is it new construction commercial you're going into or is it repaint? If you're currently a residential repaint contractor, um, repaint is a good start because it's not that different from what you're doing. You probably already have some sort of estimating process, whether it's just you know the numbers you know as being an applicator or you're using something like Estimate Rocket or one of the things that are out there. You can start to look at buildings and build up. And then maybe a little piece over here is devoted to going after you know the new construction stuff. For me, I got a few jobs into new construction and I realized there was no way I could do everything and nor did I have the skill set to continue that. So I went out and hired someone and I was fortunate enough to find somebody part-time. My first uh, construction, new construction uh, commercial estimator was actually a retired uh, general contractor estimator. So he was way overqualified, but he was retired, he was bored. And so we worked out a deal that was piecework and then we went from piecework to part-time um, in the beginning, he would just create a takeoff, and it was up to me to populate it with whatever I wanted to charge for that job. And so that relationship blossomed and grew, and eventually he became full-time with us, and he's trained a lot of my younger team is coming up, and he's got a vast knowledge, so I was really fortunate in that. But I was looking for someone who could partner with me and help grow. So on the commercial side of it, I think you either got to dedicate a lot of your time to training, or you got to go out and hire somebody that's going to help you with it. On the repaint, I think you just baby step yourself up as you feel more and more comfortable with those projects. Yeah, it's a big why. Why do you want to enter that market? And, uh, and understanding what you're good at and just going for those projects. A friend of mine here called, he, he was sharing he wants to paint drywall up to eight feet, that's it. So he knows what he wants to do, so it's easier for him to go after that type of work. So we're taking baby steps into commercial, and we, we use estimate rockets, simple to estimate, and it's, uh, we like to work for clients where we have control, control the project. We use our contract, another contract on 90% of those. 
and uh, baby steps. I'm not gonna take on a big job if I, if I know I can't do it. But make sure you, you always circle back to your numbers, make sure you're making money. It sounds great, oh, I'm a commercial contractor, but if you're not making money, I mean, just go back to the last two years. What did you do? What was profitable? What was easy? What, uh, was your blood pressure where it should have been or not? And just keep on doing those things. Excellent advice. Say one more go thing? ahead. Yeah, I go. was just going to, you know, one of the things that I've seen coming to these is we're always having conversations about our family having to wait on us, you know, because we're making some sacrifice or what's your blood pressure when you deal with this. So have fun. I mean, I love coming to these events and networking with all of you guys, and I've learned so much from everybody. And it, isn't this fun to come away and go to a rodeo and have a beer and have that conversation? And I've met some really amazing people through this. And so the education factor here is great, but also the networking. And then you can call somebody up and say, hey, I'm running into this. What has been your experience with it? So I'm really a big fan of the PCA. A, a contractor that I know encouraged me to go to my first event. And so I applaud you guys for being here. And I think, uh, I think this is one of the best things we could do for our industry. Absolutely tremendous advice. Uh, and I said this at the end of the other panel that I moderated. I'm going to speak for you guys on the stage. I'm going to encourage everybody here. You see these guys later at lunch, chat them up. I know they'd be more than happy to chat with you about just like what you just said about networking. Um, and that is the beauty of PCA. Let's be bold. Let's ask people questions. Let's network. Um, one bit of housekeeping on the app below where you can ask a question. You have the opportunity to fill out the survey. That really helps. That makes this more useful, even more useful. So please give feedback, be honest, positive, negative, you hated the moderator, whatever. Fill it out. Help PCA create even better uh, panels in the future. So thank you for coming, and let's end it by giving these guys a round of applause. Paint Ed podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and is made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPaintEd.org.